murders are committed for all kinds of reasons. An affair is discovered and a crime of passion takes place. Revenge, after a perceived slight, pushes someone to take a life. And then there are others. Murders committed for mere dollars. On a whim. And it still shocks me to this day, the petty things that drive some to kill. My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join me. We're crossing the line. Today, when I hear Waco, Texas, two things come to mind. Of course, one is the Branch Davidians, a religious cult known as the Branch, run by a dude named Vernon Howell, who later became the mastermind control freak, David Koresh. It's a huge story, too much to get into here, but it didn't end well. The FBI raided the Davidian compound after a 51-day standoff in 1993. They tried to seize Koresh, and a series of fires started, leaving 76 people, not just Koresh, but families, including 26 children, dead. The other thing I think of, something my daughter will adore, is much more wholesome. Magnolia, the mega company created by Chip and Joanna Gaines from the smash hit TV series Fixer Upper, which is based in Waco. Elizabeth Liz Romero, the subject of our story this week, was closer to the latter than the former. By all accounts, she was a warm, gentle, caring, loving soul. All qualities the Gaines family espouse as well, I might say. Liz did have her problems, and we'll get into that later. In the photos I have of her, she displays an endearing, engaging smile that immediately speaks to how happy she seems. Liz celebrated her 43rd birthday in early 2022, and yet she looks no more than 35. Long, curly, dark hair, she sometimes dyes blonde. Liz had spent time in the Army before coming home to the Waco area to marry and have four children, all boys, who she loved cooking, playing bingo, and fishing with. She was part of a big Latinx family who cared greatly for her. When we sometimes say that a person is one of a kind, a productive member of their community, we say it perhaps out of respect, almost in passing. Yet saying it about Liz Romero cannot underscore enough how accurate those words are, according to those who knew her. When something happens to someone, we tend to glamorize them in cliched terms and overestimate how good they were. In this case, all those things about Liz Romero were seemingly true. It's early April of this year, 2022, and Liz Romero is missing. Family members are growing increasingly worried about her. No one has heard from her in several days. It's out of character for Liz not to check in with family and tell them about her daily goings-on. After nearly a week, on April 8th, several of Liz's family members head over to the Gatesville Police Department, a suburb just outside Waco, to report Liz missing. They are extremely anxious about the situation. It is just so unlike her not to communicate. Liz lives in Gatesville. 
It's a city that is home to five out of the nine prisons and jails for women in the state. I know Gatesville. I have written several books about female murderers spending the rest of their lives in one Gatesville prison or another. It's an odd feeling being in this town. The people seem really pleasant and completely neighborly. It's very community-centered, and it's beautiful. That's not what I mean. But because of the business I'm in, while I was there, I could not help but to think about the Mountain View Unit, which is the prison housing the state's death row ward for women. And in a state like Texas, when you are sentenced to death, there is a better chance than most other states that you will die at some point. I mean, I guess you could say that there's a 100% chance of (laughs) dying at some point, but... I mean, it's pretty scary, though. When you picture a murderer, you don't usually picture a woman, but obviously they're out there. Right. And of course, we're all going to die. And that's Catherine Law. (laughs) Hi. By the way, my producer on Crossing the Line, who likes to get a little sassy from time to time. (laughs) And I like it. I like it. You know, it's funny you say this about female murderers. We don't often picture females as malicious death row type murderers, mm-hmm. I'll say. One woman, very young at the time, in her teens, gunned down four 19, 20-year-olds, two of whom were her best friends in high school who actually mentored her. Oh. And as one of those friends was crying out and trying to call 911, still alive after the barrage of bullets, this killer then walked over and beat her in the head until she died. So that's a, that's violence. That's yeah. that's extreme violence, you know. You don't think about women having like that much rage in them to be able to do something like that. But would you ever do that case on CTL Phelps or do you think it's just too horrible? Uh no, I would and I have a lot of tape for that case, you know, audio that I could Ooh. share. So at some point we'll do that. Cool. And, you know, horrible is basically our business, right? My poor mother, she tried to listen to this, uh, and I tried to send her some episodes that were like not as terrible, but she she loved the Dateline now and again, but we were a little too too horrifying for her, unfortunately. Was she the one in the text who said, Catherine, I heard the episode, and by the way, you were the best thing about it? <laughs> no, that was my sister's childhood friend. She has to say that. She has to say I don't care. I loved it. I loved it. It's like, thank you, Sarah. Hey, if our families are not our best Exactly. Uh, she's supporters. known me since I was five, so she's got to say that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a surreal moment being there in Gatesville, waiting to walk into this particular prison, knowing the worst of the worst are behind those walls. We view true crime in a vacuum sometimes, I think, not paying too much mind to the realities of what goes on after a murder trial is over. But these are terrible places, high security prisons where the worst murderers in the country are housed with awful human beings in them. They are dirty places. They smell. They're loud. And there's an overall feeling of gloom upon entering. Uh, You want to take a shower, of course, after leaving. It just kind of washes over you and you cannot seem to shake it. Yeesh. And, you know, I go on and on about these prisons here because this week's case and I don't want to get too far ahead, but death row will come into play here. So Elizabeth Ann Romero's family is at the police station reporting her missing. They tell investigators that Liz 
liked to stick around Gatesville in the Waco area and was not known to head out of town, especially without saying anything to anyone. And I want to give props to these investigators who don't judge or question the concerns of the family. They decide to look into Liz's cell phone records to see if anything seems off. And they discover a red flag immediately that her phone last pinged on April 2nd in the area of Memorial Drive, which is a fairly busy area of town just off West Main or Route 84. There's no activity they can find after that. Liz had not used her phone in almost a week. One family member then shares with police that they had heard Liz could be at a home on Moccasin Bend Road. Liz knows a girl who lives at the home, and maybe she is being kept there against her will. Cops head out to the address to check it out. That home is about a nine-minute drive or five miles from Memorial Drive, where Liz's phone last pinged. The home, kind of run down and sketchy, is in a rather secluded area of town. The information of Liz being kept against her will, according to the family, is solid from a good source. So how long do you think it is before the family goes to the cops after they discover her missing? Liz has been missing for at least six days by this time. It's not like the family is overreacting. It's been quite a while. The local sheriff's office heads over to the Moccasin Bend home to do what they call, in an affidavit I obtained from the case, a welfare check. It gives them probable cause to knock and ask to look around. So they head out and they do their job. I mean, this is how it should go, right? That welfare check provides nothing in the form of any additional evidence. And now investigators are stuck. Where do they go next? You have to think, when you're investigating a missing person, I guess you just kind of start with a lead and follow it from A to B. I mean, yeah, it's not so much rocket science, just good people doing the right thing and cops doing their job. Mm -hmm. And important to say here, not allowing their own thoughts, feelings, judgments, or biases to intercede. It's how a majority of missing and murder cases are solved, just following that evidence. And I will say, as we see in this case, taking the family seriously and not questioning their concerns. They have literally nothing to go on, however. Unless you have information coming in, you are stuck at this stage, right? They've spoken to family and friends, They've looked in all the places Liz might be or might have gone. All of it goes nowhere. And the case goes on like this for almost a month. No new information is coming in. The family is struggling to cope. They know by now something is drastically wrong. So as an investigator, when you have no next steps, what do you do in that situation? You wait and you watch, meaning watch the family Watch the friends. Look into what people involved have told you to see if it holds water. Mm. This is the point where you might begin to question things, make judgments, follow theories. With luck, someone slips up, gets drunk, and says something. A rumor flies around town you pick up on, or information comes to you. Yeah, maybe somebody gets a guilty conscience and tells on somebody else or tells on themselves. But it doesn't mean something evil or sinister has happened, right? Mm, Right. I mean, you can't go there if you're family or part of the investigation simply because you have nothing at this stage pointing in that direction. Right. As a family member, you can't mourn or become angry or upset over what you don't know. That's a trap. Yeah. 
After all, there could be a reasonable explanation to all of this. But then, of course, this is a true crime podcast, so there's not. <laughs> On May 10th, 2022, a break comes. The Coriel County Sheriff's Office, who hold jurisdiction over the missing person case of Elizabeth Romero, receive a tip. And it's not what everyone is hoping to hear. So let's take a short break so we can keep the lights on in here. Come right back. And if you haven't subscribed, do it now. It's May 10. 2022. A couple of things happen. First, cops receive a tip about Liz Romero's disappearance from an extremely rare source, the mother of a future suspect. I'll just have Catherine read the exact wording of that tip as written by an investigator. Miss Romero was murdered at the Moccasin Bend Road home, her body loaded into a blue pickup truck and dumped off a bridge in town. The reason I had you read that tip, Catherine, is it's very specific, if you notice. There are details. Blue yeah. truck, her body loaded into the truck, tossed off a bridge. So it's someone only in the know who could possibly have said these things. Right. There's nothing vague about what might have happened to Liz, according to this person. It's very exact. She then gives several names of those who are responsible for Liz's murder in some form or fashion. Jessica Robinson and Aaron Fincham are two of those names at the center of this conspiracy to murder Liz. In fact, the tipster goes on to say that Jessica shot Liz inside that Moccasin Bend Drive home. So Jessica, was she the friend that Liz's family pointed to saying like she's got a friend at that house, you know, possibly knowing something or keeping her hostage? Yes, she was. Okay. Investigators have a feeling that if Liz was shot inside the home, that her body is maybe not that far away and is somewhere on the land, not in that river, as the tipster claims. Hmm. At the very least, they need to rule out that scenario. So they bring dogs out to that area by the Moccasin Bend home and conduct a search. They find nothing. So they search near that bridge. They find nothing else. Based on the tip, however, they questioned Jessica Robinson, who Liz knew. Many verify this connection. And then they arrest Jessica on theft charges, stealing from a construction site. Nine days after the tip is called in, with media reports of Liz's case now surfacing, and talk amongst people in town brewing, a local cattle rancher comes forward. He says he has someone who wants to talk about Liz's murder. Cops are all ears, obviously. This new tipster or witness claims again that Jessica Robinson and Aaron Fincham, who goes by Bailey, shot Liz to death. Now you have two corroborating witnesses saying the same thing. Police are taking this all very seriously and realize it's the most likely narrative of what happened. But still no body, huh? Still no body. That's a problem. Aaron Fincham, a.k.a. Bailey, is arrested for assault and causing bodily injury to someone. She denies it, but it's enough to get her into custody where they can now talk to her. And Jessica Robinson has already been arrested for theft. You see, on March 31st, just before Liz went missing, Jessica was involved with the theft of some lumber. 
That feels like not the first thing I'd think of to steal. Pretty remarkably cumbersome to steal lumber. You know, I had that thought as well, but then I thought COVID prices. So COVID oh, prices of lumber. I didn't even think about that. Kind of kind of went like five times, especially if you have a buyer for it, which I think they did. Cops find out that Liz's name is attached to that case as well. Liz was actually in the truck that had stolen lumber in it with Jessica. Okay, so this nice mom is also a lumber thief is what you're telling me. She was in the truck. She was part of that theft. Okay. Absolutely. All right. You bring up a point that I want to talk about a little bit with you because victims of murder, we talk a lot about them on the show as flowery, great people who did great things and everybody loves them and their life is perfect, but no life is perfect. Mm -hmm. And And for me to talk about victims of murder, you know, a couple of things they've done in their life that are bad should not define them. And it should not become part of who they are if they're a murder victim. And I'm not saying that, look, if somebody's out robbing people and knocking over old people in the parking lot of Walmart that they're, you know, I'm not going to profile them on the show. I'm not, right. I'm not interested right. in those people, but I'm interested in people who've made mistakes in their lives, are good people generally, and you know they become murder victims. I think their stories yeah. need to be told. Well, I think you make a good point because people are not just one thing. Yeah. And even if you are making a mistake, so you know we have Liz here, the cops can place her stealing this lumber. The penalty for stealing something isn't being murdered. So I think some people might say like, oh, well, she deserved it. She was, you know, running around doing bad stuff. But also like, that's not something that you should be killed for. Right. You shouldn't be killed for any reason, Catherine. Right. If I could just give you that advice. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but but uh, um, I, I, I don't ever want to start measuring victims of murder on a scale of right. what they Goodness, did in their badness, life. Goodness, badness, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. People are They're complex. murder victims. And, you know, at the top of the show, I'm talking about how Liz liked to fish with her kids and play bingo with them. And, and her, her family fam- loved her. Her family loved her. That's all true. Mm-hmm. But it's also true that she was involved in the theft of lumber. Mm-hmm. So we're going to point that out as well. Yeah. But now, as a cop, we have a connection between missing woman and now a suspect, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's huge. At the time, Jessica denies being involved in the theft of the lumber and blames the theft on Liz. But there's evidence that both Liz and Jessica were in a pickup truck on the construction site on the day of the theft. With that, cops head over to interview Jessica's mother. Betsy, who owned the blue truck. And now they have a pretty good feeling that this theft has had something to do with Liz not being heard from or seen in quite a while. And after all that, things don't take long to come together. Phelps, do I need to say it? It, A (laughs) to B equals C. Yes. Two plus two. Equals four. Mm -hmm. Of course. And now you have a case building against a suspect. And look, 
We might joke about the way in which investigations unfold and our little math analogies here on Crossing the Line, but it truly is the way in which most murders are solved. Mm. Just keep following the evidence, and when something smells foul, understand that it generally is. As a Texas Ranger and investigators from the Coriel County Sheriff's Office interview Betsy, she doesn't take long to give it up. Quote, Betsy admitted that her daughter Jessica shot Elizabeth at the house, Moccasin Bend Drive, but she does not know where the body was dumped, the affidavit says. Okay. So they asked for consent to search that pickup truck. Betsy agrees. In the bed of the truck, they take swabs of what appears to be blood. They also find a woman's necklace with hair attached to it. They find empty beer cans and a cell phone. All the swabs they collect after a quick field test indicate a positive reaction for blood. Now they have a potential crime scene in Betsy's truck. The weakest link in all of this, cops believe, is likely Erin Fincham. She seems from all they've learned to be a follower, Jessica more of a leader. So that is the suspect you want to approach with an iron fist first. This is the person you want under a hot lamp so you can poke at her with the evidence you have and maybe, well, maybe even a few lies. What do you mean lies? Cops lie all the time in these situations to suspects. Like, listen, your bestie is in the other room and she just gave your ass up. So you had better come clean and allow us to do what we can do to help you. You know, that that's a lie. So basically what you're saying is it's not true that when you're selling drugs and you ask someone if they're a cop, they have to tell you. I'm asking for a friend, Phelps. Um, it's not true. Okay. Okay, so so Betsy gets it. I mean, she gets that she's in Texas and there is some shit on the line here. She's basically handing over her own daughter. It's kind of like, you know, on SVU when there's the guy unloading the crates and he's like, Yeah, this guy's always been kind of suspect, but I ain't seen him in a week. Not since he had blood all over his hands. I think you nailed Betsy. I think a better analogy of Betsy might be like the grandma from Throw Mama from a Train. (laughs) Yes. With Danny DeVito. Mm -hmm. You know, like that. Mm -hmm. You know, Betsy is basically, how can I put this best? She's a piece of shit. I was going to say a huge bitch. (laughs) Yeah. She's a piece of shit. I would never say the word that Catherine said. Ever. I'm a lady, so I can say it. (laughs) And so as they put a boot to Aaron's throat and apply a bit of pressure, metaphorically speaking, of course. Yeah. She cracks like peanut brittle. Okay. And they don't even have to lie. All they need to do is point out the evidence. Look, sweetie, we have blood, hair, witness statements, tips, and we know you were there. You give it up. We see what we can do for you. Aaron drops her shoulders and gives it up. Quote, I was there when Jessica shot Liz with a revolver twice in the upper chest while in the living room of that house on Moccasin Bend Drive. That's really all they need in order to press murder charges or at the least accessory to murder. Aaron, though, has more to say. Like, for example, there were others. 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 Yes. More people knew about the murder of Liz Romero and did nothing to report it or to try to stop it or to try to help her. 
I mean, what were they like having a family reunion? What the hell? Yeah, this looks like, you know, this was a conspiracy and they were bullying her and they just all ganged up on her. And so this case, cops realize, is just starting to unfold. But more than that, I think I should mention here is this case is looking more and more like a death penalty case. Allow me one more quick break and we'll come back to tell you what happens next. When you are living in a state like Texas and suddenly cops knock on your door talking about a murder, it's a good idea that if you know anything, anything at all, you had better give it up. In ultra-liberal New England here where I am located, if you followed crossing the line from the beginning, you'll understand that you can murder someone in Connecticut, take a sentence, serve a small fraction of those years, get back out, murder someone else, serve a small fraction of that sentence, and then walk out of prison again. Man, I got to start planning more murders in Connecticut, Phelps. But back in the early days of CTL, we did an episode about this exact scenario. We did. The victim and murderer in that case were former classmates of mine. The episode is one of the first CTLs. The show was a different format then, just keep in mind. But if you want to hear that episode and be enraged by what you hear, it's called A Warped Judicial System, The Murder of Sherry Ann Merton. And what I mean by this shameless promotional digression is that murder is viewed differently in different states. And those laws on the books basically protecting murderers can influence an active investigation. That's a good point. So laws in various states can either like tie detectives' hands or make things a little bit easier as they investigate. As a suspect in a murder, for example, if you know when you're being questioned by cops that you have laws on your side to lessen the impact of your sentence or what you'll be charged with, it hinders the ability of investigators to solve these cases and pull information from you. That's why I say in Texas, if the charge of murder is mentioned in the same breath as your name, you had better cough shit up because a sentence in Texas is a sentence. And if there are aggravating circumstances, well, you could wind up on death row. And most nitwits with half a brain being questioned in a murder in a state such as Texas, would know this, I assume. To assume makes an ass of you and me, Phelps. It certainly does. <laughs> I love that. Uh, I hesitate to use that because it makes me sound like an old guy. <laughs> Can I tell you the worst thing I learned about Texas death row as we did this case, Phelps? Texas is the only state... In which if you are being served your last meal, they just like give you whatever lunch was that day. They don't let you pick, which honestly is like kind of horrifying. There's no more lobster dinners and I'll have five <laughs> cheeseburgers from McDonald's or, you know, it's no. And and granted, it should be that way. You're going, uh, you're, you're dying. Phelps. You're dying for a crime you committed, uh, an unfathomable, horrific crime. You know, maybe you skinned three people or you beheaded someone or whatever you did. I right? mean, fair point. But like, can a guy get some fried chicken or something? Well, you can have that when you get to uh, your, your, your place <laughs> to of Shangri-La. Yeah. When you get to Shangri-La. Or wherever else you're going. Wherever you choose to go. Yeah. Go toward the light. <laughs> I think if you've skinned somebody alive that you're not going towards the light. And you get no fried chicken. But anyway, 
Now armed with a few more names of co-conspirators possibly connected to Liz's murder, investigators go out and track these people down and get them in a room to talk about it. One guy, there on that day of the alleged murder, paints a picture of the two women, Jessica and Aaron, kind of bullying Liz inside the house. He says that Jessica, brandishing a serrated knife, approached Liz while at the house and threatened her with that knife, holding it up to her throat. Outside a bit later, Jessica and Aaron have a little meeting and are overheard discussing something, though this dude doesn't say what. Then Jessica and Aaron barge back into the house and begin arguing with Liz in the living room. Betsy, Jessica's mother, is there for all of this as well. In fact, this dude says he could hear Betsy at one point talking to Liz inside the bathroom kind of going at her about missing money from the sale of that stolen lumber. As this guy is leaving the house a bit later, he runs into Jessica outside, but now she has a gun in her hand. He then tells her, apparently, you don't want to do this. You know, shoot Liz in front of your parents. I love the in front of your parents part, like as if that's the crime here. Like you might get sent to your room. (laughs) Don't want to disappoint mom and dad. That's it, right? Yeah. You don't want to disappoint mom and dad by committing murder in front of them, right? Got to do it, you know, wait till they're out of town. You know, we laugh about that little comment, but this is what I mean by so little value on human life today. Priorities yeah. here. Quote, my dad told me where the gun was, Jessica allegedly tells this dude, as he is preparing to leave the property. Before he goes, he says Aaron comes out of the house and grabs her cigarettes and purse from his truck, saying this. I'm going to be here for a while. What you said at the top of the show, these motives for murder can be petty and they continue to shock you. But so this is all over some stolen lumber. What can that even be worth, even in COVID times? And that's the point. We're talking about a dispute over a little bit of money from the sale of stolen wood. Really? Killing someone over the theft of some lumber? Next. Betsy Robinson, Jessica's mother, tells police that Aaron comes back into the house and sits next to Liz, who is being held against her will, basically, on the couch. They start discussing the lumber. Aaron and Jessica then take out their phones and start to show Liz texts, accusing her of lying to them. During this interview with Betsy, she admits to making Liz strip down, in her words, quote, like an inmate, end quote so she can search her for the missing money. This happened inside the bathroom as Betsy went after Liz. So Betsy is totally deeply involved in this, and she's also like ready to throw her own daughter under the bus when she gets spooked. Yeah, so much for worrying about killing somebody in front of your parents because Betsy is just as involved as the daughter. I mean, Betsy is a piece of freaking work. You're going to see that as we continue here. Betsy admits to telling Liz, mind you, while in front of the boyfriend of one of the girls, who later tells cops what she said, that he needs to go, quote, dig a hole for a Mexican, end quote. Jesus. I apologize for saying that, but it is a quote and part of the affidavit accompanying this case. It's germane to the story because it displays an amount of hatred and racism on Betsy's part that I am sure ran through the entire gang. Of these three. Mm -hmm. Now, with Liz on the couch and the girls yelling at her, accusing her, Jessica takes 
the weapon out, it shoots Liz two times in the chest. Betsy tells police that Liz dies quickly on the couch. It is then that Betsy says she tells Jessica and Aaron to, quote, get a trash bag to prevent blood from going everywhere, end quote. She also admits to cleaning up a bloody footprint left behind inside the house. From there, Betsy says she locates the weapon and a second gun inside a trailer Jessica lives in nearby, takes them and, quote, wraps them in clean adult urine pads and places them in a trash bag, end quote. Betsy was going to toss them somewhere, but instead told cops where she hid them. So the cops go and find the urine pads. I I, I never thought in my life I'd be saying that. (laughs) Not a sense you thought you were going to say today, huh, Phelps? (laughs) So cops then go find the urine pads. Right. The couch is then cut up and burned by one of the boyfriends. According to two other witnesses there that day, Jessica and a man place Liz's body in a rubber-made tote and get rid of it. Jesus, that's bleak. For the record, again, she did not cross herself. This happened, according to that police interview with Betsy, after she had called Jessica to tell her that Liz was lying about the sale of the lumber. So really, we have Betsy talking shit about what Liz is doing, and that's what sets this whole thing off. So truly, like, from start to finish to confession, this is all Betsy's instigation. This is the throw mama from a trained grandma instigating this whole thing. Uh-huh. This, is, this is Betsy. From that point, Betsy sent Liz's texts to Aaron and Jessica that apparently proved she was lying. She's got the receipts. So let's talk a little bit about Betsy. Betsy Ann Robinson is a 57-year-old, gray-haired, bulgy-eyed, thin-lipped, chubby old woman who looks the part of the backstabbing busybody out for revenge. Just Google her, please. Both Betsy and Jessica, her 34-year-old daughter, are charged with murder. Jessica Robinson, however, has an added charge of capital murder, a capital felony, punishable by death if found guilty. Jessica's cousin, there that day, Cody Jean Ayers, is charged with tampering with evidence. So is Cody, is he the dude or the boyfriend we were talking about earlier? There's another person here. No, like, there is another guy. And I think it's the other guy who's the boyfriend. Truly, how many fucking people are at this murder? Well, these guys, these guys leave before the murder. Okay. Okay. That's that's why they're they're never really charged with anything else besides tampering with evidence. God. There it. is no charge as of this writing against Aaron, which tells me she is the state's star witness in all of this, backing up what Betsy yeah. said. So basically if Betsy recants, they still have Aaron. That's it. I mean, you know, that's that's just smart prosecution to get at really the core of justice here. Mm-hmm. So Liz is dead because on March 31st of this year, 2022, $300 worth of plywood lumber is stolen from a construction site in Gatesville. The owner of the construction site had video showing Liz getting out of Jessica's truck with a woman fitting Jessica's description driving and loading plywood into the back. He put the video of the theft on his Facebook page and Liz came forward to admit it was her. Liz, according to a second affidavit, told the owner of the lumber that she and Jessica had stolen it. So Liz was in the process, apparently, of making amends for a bad decision, going back to what I said, wanting to admit the theft and return either the wood or the money. 
but she was murdered before she could do any of that. That's what Aaron, Jessica, and Betsy were so pissed off about. 300 freaking dollars. It's so ghastly. It's like back in the 90s when people would get murdered for their Nikes, which were $100, which was kind of a lot of money. But it's also like, if you ask somebody, would you rather I take your life or take your sneakers? They would say, take my sneakers any day. You would say, here's $100 and I will keep my life. Like, it just makes no logical sense. This is why I love having you on Crossing the Line, Catherine, because you remember all these cultural references that just <laughs> have slipped my mind over the years. And you're you're dead on here. Yeah. The Nikes thing. It's just like that. It's just like that. In September 2022, police announced that they found Liz's remains, though they did not disclose where or under what circumstances. A forensic institute in Dallas confirmed the remains being that of Elizabeth Romero. And the reason why they're not saying that is because it's probably a crucial piece of evidence in these cases. To, um, like secure the convictions and stuff. Yeah. And maybe they still want to hear it from the people who put her there. Because maybe, just maybe, there might be more arrests coming. I mean, there was truly 100 people at this murder. Yeah, 105. <laughs> Finding Liz's remains is a crucial piece of trying these cases. It's huge. Finding her body all this time later also tells me that someone finally talked. We will fill you in on what happens in this case when it is finally fully adjudicated. I don't think it's a stretch to say all will be found guilty. I think the questionable part of the cases will be if Jessica Robinson will receive the death penalty. And I'd be shocked if a jury or judge sentences Jessica to death. But it is Texas, so one never knows. She better get a fried chicken while she can. Jessica better load up on Popeye's or Kentucky Fried while she can indeed. Right. <laughs> Not going to get it for that last meal. I'm just thinking about this TikTok I saw earlier today, and it told me why I need to just delete the app. Uh, someone took a bunch of fried chicken that was fried in grease. And they put it in like a squisher to squish all the grease out. Oh my out. God, gross. And it's like, yeah, I, I think I'm done with TikTok after yeah. that. Yeah, there's just so much like vapid, stupid bullshit. I'm like, why are we wasting our precious one life on the planet looking at this stupid stuff? We are poisoning our minds with that bullshit. Yeah. Uh, so on that note, that's it for this week. Be safe, be aware, and please be back here next week. And catch me on TikTok at M. William Phelps. Yep. Excellent. Uh, perfect. Sources for today's episode come from Autopsy Confirms Remains Found to be Murdered Waco Woman, ABC 25, by O. Gloria Okori. The State of Texas v. Jessica C. Robinson, Capital Murder Complaint, Elizabeth Liz Romero's Obituary. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bacci and EP, Christina Everett. Audio engineering, original music, and sound design by Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, Visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 